Hello and welcome to the Art Crime Cast Episode 2. My name is Nana Kangadze and thank you for tuning in. Thank you again, first of all, to everyone who left feedback about the last episode. I'm really glad that you enjoyed listening just as much as I did putting it together and hope that you find this episode just as interesting. It focuses on the legendary case of forgery, the other type of art crime. As a reminder, all the images discussed will be, can be found on the pod blog, theartcrimecast.wordpress.com. Let us begin. Prize thief among the high Nazis was Hermann Goering, who looted museums and private collections in all parts of Europe. Much was hidden in caves, and advancing troops captured fully laden freight cars, ready to move much of the collection to safer places for Hermann. Goering's ill-gotten loot is no longer his to admire. The collection goes on display for GIs before an Allied commission attempts to return everything to the proper owners. One thing that many people do not know about the Third Reich is the insatiable appetite its top leadership had for art. Over the course of the Nazi regime's domination of Europe and into its wane, the obsessions of Adolf Hitler and Ermin Goering with capturing as many of Europe's art treasures for Germany was nearly boundless. Thousands upon thousands of works were bought, strong-armed, or stolen in the regime's time from museums and collectors across the continent and eventually hidden in bunkers and mines as the Allies pushed back the Nazi advance. Because of the Reich's belief in the inherent superiority of Germanic peoples, they believed that their master race should be the true guardians um, of history's treasures of art. And they were selective, too, exalting works by Aryan artists and rejecting all modern avant-garde art and works by Jewish and Slavic ones as degenerate. Hitler was insatiable in his desire for works that fit his particular taste, especially old masters in 18th century landscapes. He had designs to create the world's greatest museum in his hometown of Linz, Austria, plans he was working on, quite befuddlingly, into his last days. Goering, the Reich Marshal, commander of the Luftwaffe and second in command among the Nazis, was self-absorbed to a comical degree and absolutely obsessed with fineries like art, antiques, jewelry, and clothes. His ostentatious estate, Karen Hall, was filled to the brim with artworks that his minions acquired for him at great cost and sometimes with intimidation from across Europe. Even as the regime fell, Goering marshaled train car loads of works with him in his escape, works eventually recaptured by the Allies. It would take decades for these and thousands of other objects wrested by the Nazis to be returned to their rightful owners. Many remain in dispute. One that does not was a work that Goering considered one of his most treasured. He traded 157 of his artworks for this so-called masterpiece, a painting of a New Testament story titled Christ with the Woman Taken into Adultery by Johannes Vermeer. As keen listeners of episode one may remember, Vermeer's works are among the, most, the world's most valuable, not only because of his masterful, unique, and recognizable style and subject matter, but because only 30-some works are attributed to the mysterious 17th century Dutch artist. A Vermeer is often the toast of any museum who possesses one, and such was certainly the case in the 1940s. Christ with the woman taken into adultery depicts the savior with his hand on the back of a woman, one arm raised and lips parted, perhaps giving the famous pronouncement, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Behind him, two hooded men look suspiciously on. As mentioned, it was one of Goering's most prized works and caused quite a splash when it reappeared in the late 1930s with no previous record of its existence. But given what we know about Vermeer's life, close to nothing, it was deemed fully plausible that something such as this may occur. The only problem with this work? It was a fake. 
It was not painted in the 17th century by the famed Dutch master. It was painted in the same decade as its discovery by a vain, alcoholic, limited talented artist, opportunist and forger named Han van Meeren. Like Vermeer, he was a Dutchman. And like Vermeer, he never achieved much critical praise for his own work in his time. But unlike Vermeer, his works, especially the ones painted to emulate Vermeer's style, are frankly and truly ugly, poor imitations. The figures look like paper cutouts or flat wax figures. The lighting has none of Vermeer's subtle handling on realism. The spacing is not so accurate as to look nearly photographic. The details are not marvelous and subtle. Quite simply, these are bad works. I highly recommend you look them up, because when one does look upon these works today, which were hugely revered and spoken about in Van Meeren's time, one kind of goes, what the hell? Looked at side by side with a Vermeer, it appears painfully obvious that they are fakes. And yet so many were fooled such a relatively short time ago. The Van Meeren Vermeers were lauded as world masterpieces, among the best in Vermeer's oeuvre, except that they were not even in it. So how did Van Meeren fool a whole cadre of Vermeer experts, museum personnel, reporters, collectors, the public, and Ermin Goering? And how was he able to make work of oil with oil paint, something that takes decades if not centuries to properly harden and can be tested very easily for authenticity with a simple swab method that passed for centuries old? In short, his success relied heavily on the tricking of a few key figures in the art world, historians and connoisseurs whose work was considered gospel. A dangerous case of confirmation bias and ego was partially responsible here, as was the dearth of information about Vermeer's life and oeuvre. Van Meeren did not do this alone. He and his accomplices weaved a web of lies to those people in order to make it sound plausible that a work could turn up like that 300 years or so later. Once Van Meeren and his cronies had them duped, it was open season. In this episode, I will discuss how that became the case and why Van Meeren's frankly poor imitations of the Dutch Golden Age master's work were able to fool such trained eyes, as well as the techniques he used to create works that were able to look 300 years old when they were not. It was thanks to his connection to Goering, as a seller connected to Christ with the Woman, that was the ultimate undoing of Van Meeren. After the liberation of Holland, the provisional government was understandably interested in rounding up those who collaborated with or were sympathetic to the Nazis. They had good reason. The citizens of occupied Holland suffered unspeakably during the war. Their cities were bombed, they were starved out, and many of their citizens were forced from their homes into Nazi forced labor and extermination camps. Over 107,000 Jews were deported from the country between 1942 and 1944. 102,000 were killed. All the while, Van Meeren and other sympathizers and profiteers lounged and partied, dined on fineries, and threw lavish get-togethers with gains gotten in the most ill of ways. It was fitting then that his connection to the Nazi party was what ended up taking Van Meeren down. It is one thing to forge artwork. It is another to profit off a situation as desperate as existed in Holland before and during the war. Van Meeren claimed during his trial that his duping of Goering was a patriotic act of resistance. This was almost certainly a lie told by a man with few scruples. To fully understand Van Meeren's story requires understanding his history as an artist before his foraging career, because, like in the case of many foragers, resentment of the establishment certainly played a role in his turn to the darker side of the art world. It also required an understanding of what it was that made Vermeer and his work so enigmatic and how the forager was able to take advantage of this. Before I get into that, I should mention that if you want a deeper account of this story, I highly recommend the book The Forger's Spell, The True Story of Vermeer, Nazis, and the Greatest Art Hoax of the 20th Centuries by Edward Dolnick. 
So, Ben Meheren's early career. The artist was born in the Netherlands in 1889. He studied architecture in the first decade of the 20th century at a technical college in Delft, which was the hometown of Vermeer, the artist who he later imitated. In the 19-teens, his career began to take off. And while he was a longtime believer in the quality of his talents and his work, did gain some measure of commercial success, critics rejected it. Typical works by him at the time included portraits, nightlife scenes, and Bible story images, painted in a wispy, old-fashioned manner. A certain drawing he did of a doe became nationally famous in reproductions because he claimed it was a sketch of a deer owned by the Netherlands uh, princess. However, as much as they may have sold well, his works were shallow, maudlin, and overly sweet. At this point, modernism had taken root in the form of such radical movements as Cubism and De Steel, the, la the latter pioneered by a Dutch contemporary of Van Meeren, Piet Mondrian. These works were almost totally abstract, grid-based paintings in primary colors, and Van Meeren hated them. He considered the style childish and a fad, preferring very representational, more old-fashioned art. The critics responded to a commercially successful show of his religious work in the early 20s with observations that while he had technical talent, his works had little depth, were weak and too sweet, lacked much inspiration, and were more illustrative than artistic. This certainly riled up Van Meeren, a vain and poor-tempered man, who began to view the critics as narrow-minded and smug, that modern art that they adored was a joke, and the artists who painted it were talentless drunks and Bolsheviks. Real talent, such as what he believed he had, was sneered at. These chagrined conspiratorial views were documented in some writings of his in a magazine that he briefly ran. Quite soon, he was convinced that there was no room for his talents within the establishment. It was time to take revenge. In a way, much of Van Meeren's tastes and views in modern art aligned with that of upper-level Nazis like Hitler. Hitler hated avant-garde modernism and its um, assumed association with communism, Jewish people, and bohemian culture, all things deemed detrimental to society. In Germany, he had much of the work bought up or requisitioned from museums to be sold abroad to bring in money for the country. Frantic museum directors fought the best they could to protect their collections of Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, Cubism, Expressionism, Dada, and so on, but they were mostly pushed out of their jobs in favor of people Hitler deemed having the right taste. As far as the artwork, over 5,000 modern masterworks were seized and hung deliberately poorly in a 1937 traveling exhibition called Entarnte Kunst, Degenerate Art, with hateful phrases and other slander written on the walls beside them. Thousands streamed in to see what the hullabaloo was all about, curiously making this hateful act one of history's most successful exhibitions. The goal was to display the dangers of avant-garde art to society. The German artists creating at the time were branded enemies of the state. Some fled to exile, some kept working in secret, and some, like Ernst Ludwig Kirchner, the great expressionist, committed suicide. A number of the works shown in the exhibition were destroyed in a huge bonfire in 1942 in France. This clearly shows that in the views of Hitler, art's position, art's position in society was extremely high, and to protect his view of a society that was perfect, only some types of work made the cut. Works by Vermeer, on the other hand, were considered worthy masterpieces. Goering and Hitler themselves both jostled for possession of one prominent Vermeer, The Art of Painting, an exquisite work showing the interior of an artist's studio with a model posing and the artist at work in the foreground. Goering, knowing his subordinate position, eventually deferred to the Führer. But his hunger for a Vermeer, one of the preeminent masters of the Dutch Golden Age, remained. As discussed in episode one, Vermeer was an artist from the Netherlands in the Baroque era, 
known for small-scale interior scenes depicting little daily moments like the reading of letters, the playing of music, and the work of maidservants. Most of these works, painted after the 1650s, seem to take place in the exact same setting, the corner of a little studio with a window on the left. They also feature a number of recurring motifs and objects, things clearly that Vermeer had in-house as props, like a yellow and blue ladies' coats, a jug, and a large patterned carpet. Some of his most famous works include Girl with a Pearl Earring, The Milkmaid, The Astronomer, View of Delft, and as mentioned, The Art of Painting. What makes these works, of which only some 36 have been found and authenticated, so beloved and valuable? Well, the fact that they are so few certainly has its place. Scarcity increases value, after all, and in the decades after Vermeer was rediscovered in the 1880s and his genius started to become world famous, the museums and newly moneyed robber barons, especially in the United States, battled it out in auction houses for their own small, enchanting canvas. Secondly, Vermeer's works, especially the most famous as listed above, have a certain serenity and subtle handling that make them timeless and very beautiful. Many works contained tiny hints at narratives, clues in the included details that make one think about what may be going on, but ultimately they give little away. They are objects for contemplation and wonder. Technically, Vermeer is known for his masterful handling of interior light, high degree of attention to detail, and wonderfully rendered depth of space. There is a place for everything and everything in its place in his artwork. And the last detail to take note of is that we know very little about Vermeer's life, frustratingly little, to scholars. He worked his whole life in the city of Delft and was part of a painter's guild, had a large family and a wife and lived with his mother-in-law, and died rather in, rather in debt at an early age. Who his patron was, how many works he really made, what he looked like, what he thought, who he thought of as influences, and where he may have traveled, all these things are big historical question marks. Van Meeheren was not the first forger to take advantage of this fact. More on that later. Let us return to the 1920s when Van Meeheren was living in The Hague with his mistress-turned-second wife, Josephine. He was achieving great success as a portrait painter for the local wealthy and spending time with a number of people who would eventually be part of his forgery-perpetrating circle. It is unknown exactly who came up with the idea to create the fakes, but by the early 30s, we know Van Meeheren was hard at work experimenting. He was conducting chemical experiments on paint, to be able to make a work that could pass for hundreds of years old when it was not. An authentic three centuries old oil painting has some distinct hallmarks, as one could guess. Some are obvious. The panel on which it is painted are of wood of the, that are the, is the proper age and is authentic to the artist's region. The nails used in the framing are antique as well. And the surface of the painting is the proper hardness and covered in a spindly network of cracks called crackalure from age. The issue is, oil paint hardens slowly extremely slowly. It will be dry in a few days to a few weeks, but truly hard after a century. A very basic test involves swabbing the surface of dry oil paint with alcohol. The paint of an old work will not yield, but a relatively new works will dissolve slightly. So one swab will be able to reveal to anyone if a purported Vermeer was really a year instead of three centuries old. So Van Meeren had a distinct challenge ahead of him. If, and this is a big if, someone were to test the work out of suspicion, it could be instantly given away. All of the other hallmarks of an old work like this could be replicated fairly easily. Purchase some antique wood, mix the paints according to the old recipes, and so on. But there was no known way to beat the hardness problem. So he had to find one. With dogged effort that would be more impressive had it not been for dastardly ends, 
but Meherin tinkered with the formula for his paints, which he mixed the old-fashioned way, namely by adding oil to pigments that he ground from raw materials. This is how it would have been done in Vermeer's day, as paint in tombs did not become available commercially until the 19th century. Then, Van Meherin purchased an oven that was large enough to fit a painting, and begun to do experiments with heating test strips of canvas, to hopefully achieve the proper hardness without losing the integrity of the color. One magic ingredient turned out to be Bakelite, a synthetic material that took its inventor, Leo Bakeland, many years to develop, initially to be a cheaper form of electric insulation. What he inadvertently created in 1907 was the first plastic. It was easy to mold, hard to break, and difficult to burn. In short, it was a sensation, and soon all sorts of industrial and commercial goods were being created with this world-altering material. It became ubiquitous. The second magic ingredient was actually an alteration. Using lavender and lilac oil in paints, which evaporate more quickly than the traditional linseed oil. Therefore, the paint might harden quicker. It all happened quite by chance, or so Van Meheren claimed. One combination of lilac oil and bakelite in the proper oven temperature. He described that he left the Teft's canvas in the oven, left to run some errands, and got held up along the way. When he removed the work eventually, much later than he had earlier expected, he found that the paint passed the alcohol test and was not burned or discolored. Then, he said, he cried like a child. This fake Vermeer was about as modern a thing as one can imagine, a painting made with plastic, and so the stage was set. It helped at this point to learn a bit about what the area surrounding the stage was actually like at the time, what things were like in Nazi-occupied Holland, and how such factors helped Van Meheren and his pals with their con. The Dutch proclaimed neutrality in 1939, but by 1940, they were invaded and their forces surrendered to the Nazis in the same year. Occupation therefore began and lasted until 1945. The Dutch were wary and worried of how they might be treated. Escaping Netherlands, too, which is pressed up on its own against the sea, was nearly impossible, and the flat, crowded, small country had a lack of hiding places for Jews and resistance members, making it that much worse for them. A registration system and ID cards were in place by 1941. By 1942, Jews were required to wear the yellow star on their attire. By 43, the Nazis had forcibly removed all the non-successfully hidden Jews from the country. This included Anne Frank, who lived 10 minutes away by foot from Van Meheren's eventual ostentatious residence. The Nazis certainly used Holland as a source of materials to plunder, and art was no exception. They once stole 100,000 bicycles for scrap metal and ransacked private homes, especially Jewish ones, throughout the occupation. Shortages, creating a huge black market, became very desperate. Tens of thousands died in the infamous hunger winter of 1944, a famine. Young Dutch women prostituted themselves to German soldiers for food, and a citizen Citizens destroyed parks worth of trees and tore apart hundred-year-old houses for fire fuel. One asset the Dutch people had was their art. The Nazi hunger to collect was insatiable, as previously mentioned, and in the early days of the war, before things got very bleak and during, a great many people cashed in on this to profit off the enemy. Prices shut up, and Nazi agents intimidated sellers and used endless state money to buy up. Given that the Dutch were Nordic too, their requisitioning was meant to be legal and not theft, though pressure was certainly involved. And the art frenzy allowed for many works that seemed to appear out of thin air to be sold without many questions. The Nazis' boundless reserves of money meant that the Dutch museums and the wealthy were fighting desperately for the best of the lot. In some cases, such as with works by or purportedly by Vermeer, this was patriotic, keeping Dutch masterpieces for the Dutch. Some people involved in this sales frenzy certainly were pressured, and some must have had good intentions or were simply very desperate but number made this chaos and desperation a honeyhole of massive proportions. Han van Meheren was one of those people.
These details may seem grim and superfluous to the story, but they are important context, both for understanding how Van Meeren's dreadful fakes passed the bar and how his later reputation as a patriotic folk hero who duped the Nazis was highly undeserved. As with all foragers who duped the exceedingly wealthy with unbelievable tricks and techniques, there is a tendency to romanticize and crown them geniuses. In this case especially, given the climate in which he operated, bestowing this forger the same treatment is certainly wrong. Returning to Van Meeren and his fakes. A collaboration with a certain artist, restorer, and forager named Theo Weingarten and a shady British collector and dealer named Harold Wright was his inn. Van Weingarten was quite the trickster. He told vague romantic stories about the discovery of fake paintings that he peddled to cover up their shady provenance or ownership history. An early conquest of his to which Van Meeren was privy to, or perhaps involved in, it isn't clear to this day, was his tricking of a famous art historian named Hofstade de Groot with a fake work by another Dutch Golden Age master, Franz Hals. The work was revealed to be a fake when an auction house who was selling the work, which was authenticated personally by de Groot, sued him. The type of paint, the type of paint that was used, the nails in the stretcher, and the improper hardness of the surface all gave it away quickly. De Groot was eventually settled by buying the fake halls and stood by it in publications that angrily attacked his critics and scientific testing, which is what determined that the paint which was used in the controversial canvas was of modern production. Authenticity, he claimed, could be decided only by the eye of the connoisseur, someone who has studied the work of an artist for so long that his or her eye for the works is essentially innate. Typically, art authentication relies on three prongs. Connoisseurship, or if a work appears right to the trained individual's eye, scientific testing, though this is foregone far more often than one would think, and provenance, or historical documentary proof of the painting's existence. Connoisseurship, de Groot believed, was the only foolproof method. If this sounds like the product of a highly overinflated ego, you are correct. But it was to play a vital role in Van Meeren's later, more successful forgeries. Whether or not Van Meeren was involved in the Van Weingarten's Hall's foragery, he certainly learned a great deal from the whole affair. First of all, the science was important. The paint would have to be able to pass tests. Second, foolproof provenance was not necessary. In the case of the Halls, Van Weingarten weaved a fanciful romantic story that distracted from the lack of paperwork backing up the work and charmed the buyers. Thirdly, some experts in the art world are almost comically sure of themselves. Trick the right ones, and it would be a lot easier to muster a pass for the work. Luck luckily for Van Meeren and Van Weingarten, there was a man who fit this bill well. His name was Abraham Brightus, and he was a preeminent expert on Vermeer at the time. By the 1930s, the aging Brightus lived in wealth in Monaco, in retirement from a long career as the Hague's Mart Huys Museum director. More importantly, he had a wild temper for anyone who dared to disagree with him, and he had been a discoverer of old masterworks in the past. Every time, he had an unshakable faith in his own authenticity judgments, wrong as they sometimes were. They were, indeed, several times for the Van Meeren forgeries. One early forgery that he tried to pass off was a painting called Lady and Gentleman at the Harpsichord, which was endorsed by Bradis and claimed to be a Vermeer. The work depicted a well-dressed pair of people, a man and a woman, cheerfully interacting next to the eponymous musical instrument in the same little, little setting that instantly says Vermeer. However, some other authorities were more doubtful of the authenticity of this quote-unquote Vermeer, and the buyer eventually hid away the work from embarrassment. Brightus was furious. The problem with the work was it was too similar to Vermeer's classic works, namely a quiet interior scene with light from a left-side window. There were a few technical missteps, 
mainly to do with the anatomy of the figures that people found questionable and gave the work away as an imitation. The, les the lesson for Van Meeheren? Don't try to copy too close, and don't rely on just one expert. The solution? Don't cobble the together Vermeer hallmarks, but make something truly new and trick more than one expert. Truly the ultimate forgery. By 1932, pushed out of Holland by his rejection um, it, from artistic circles in The Hague and his critical unpopularity, Van Meeheren was also in the French Riviera. The work he created some years later, once he had figured out how to beat the hardness problem, um, was called Christ at a Mouse. The work depicts a story from the Gospel of Luke, where after the crucifixion, the risen Christ secretly joins two disciples in travel and, to, and dinner, and only later on reveals his true identity to them, to their shock. The most famous works depicting this story are two by the Italian Baroque master Caravaggio, known for his work that showed intense chiaroscuro, bold lighting on near, near black backgrounds, and humble, realistic depictions of subjects painted with painstaking detail. They are Supper and a Mouse from 1601 and 1606, respectively, two separate works, same name. They are both gripping, as many of his religious works are, showing Christ right before and after, respectively, he reveals himself whilst dining with disciples. The scenes are lit as if from spotlights, and the figures look like authentic salt-of-the-earth peasants or laborers, basically realistic to what the disciples would have really looked like. They were fishermen, after all. However, this caused quite a stir in Caravaggio's day, since it was convention to depict holy figures in fineries as figures of the utmost perfection, not like the common, dirty man. But that is why Caravaggio's works have so much power and were vastly influential in his time. His innovative work was a turning point for art, and his followers, some of who operated in northern Europe around the time of Vermeer, were called the Caravaggisti, followers of Caravaggio. Scholars studying Vermeer at the time of Van Meeheren were very keen on several ideas involving Caravaggio, including the fact that Caravaggio may have been an early influence on Vermeer. They were also keen on the, on the idea that the number of works attributed to Vermeer was dreadfully low and that there were gaps in his oeuvre because of lost works waiting to be found. Someone who very strongly believed this was a man Albert Bradis happened to have the ear of. He was Dirk Hanema, the director of the Boybins Museum in Rotterdam, Holland. Hanema had staged a show some years prior which showed many Vermeers and works by those thought to influence him, including ones by Caravaggisti painters. Some of the works in his show listed as Vermeers were later proved to be fakes. So Hanema was an obvious target, a believer in the Caravaggio-Vermeer connection, a follower of Bradis, and a museum director on whose authority, and a museum director whose authority would bring a lot of attention to any newly discovered work. He'll be back shortly, remember him. His mark set up, then Meheren began work on Christ at a Mouse in 1936. He bought an old 17th century canvas from a gallery, quite large with the original stretcher, and took it apart and scraped off the old paint. It took him six months to paint the actual work on top of this, and the final composition contains four figures echoing closely the composition of Caravaggio's A Mouse. Christ sits at the center, his hand raised over a plate of bread next to a jug. Behind him, a black-cloaked woman looks down at the scene. On Christ's left and right, there are two disciples, one with his back to us and the other in profile. It seems to be the moment before Christ's pronouncement of his identity, which is also the subject of one of Caravaggio's Amaus works. However, it lacks the painstaking realism and dramatic lighting of the Italian master. Instead, Van Meeheren gave the figures a more contemplative, sad treatment. To modern viewers, the figures look like zombies. Christ himself looking particularly disturbing in the opinion of this podcaster with his enormous eyes and weird long face. Van Meeheren borrowed some of 
for mere signature elements like the left window, a certain jug that appears in multiple works, and the pose of some of the figures which are heavily inspired by other Vermeer poses to give it some more recognizability. Then he baked the canvas, gave it some hand-done cracking, and put some ink into the cracks to replicate the crackler which can be found in works that old. The con was complete. But would it pass better than his first fake Vermeer? Van Meeren used an attorney and a politician friend named G.A. Boone as another middleman, telling him that the work belonged to a Dutch family living in Italy who needed the money to emigrate and escape the fascists there. Their collection was immense, he said, and someone in the family managed to smuggle a work into France for Van Meeren to sell and pass along the proceeds, Livermere. But could Boone help in exchange for a small cut of the commission? It was fanciful, but Boone was duped. He got in touch with Abraham Bredis and managed to show him the work. Historical record here is somewhat fuzzy on what Bredis' actual state of mind regarding the work was, initially. But whatever it was, he chose to act. And at the end of the summer, three months after he had seen the work, he authenticated it officially. And not only so, he lauded praises and praises upon it, calling it Vermeer's most beautiful work, the work most bearing his soul, unique, enchanting, gorgeous, truly some amazing words for a work that contemporary viewers find extremely ugly. I seriously advise you to go look it up if you haven't already. Make your own call. In 1939, in the November issue of the Burlington Magazine, the well-known art critic Abraham Bradius announced the discovery of a painting and declared that he had every reason to believe that it was the masterpiece of Jan Vermeer of Delft. He wrote, Expression indeed is the most marvelous quality of this unique picture. Outstanding is the head of Christ. Serene and sad, as he thinks of all the suffering which he, the Son of God, had to pass through in his life on earth. So why was Bredis so convinced, so much that he claimed to be enraptured from one look? It had to do with the confirmation bias mentioned previously. The work Van Meeren made in imitation of Vermeer had many of the choice elements Bredis believed would be present in hitherto unseen Vermeers, such as the Caravaggio connection and a religious subject. It is unclear to what degree Van Meeren knew of this exactly, but the work he did end up creating was almost tailor-made to Bredis' Vermeer fantasy. I will move the story along now at a faster clip in the interest of brevity. At this point, Bredis mounted an intense campaign to get the work bought by a Dutch museum, so great he thought it was. Here's where Dirk Hanema comes in. It was his museum that received the work, eventually. It was donated by the Rembrandt Society, which he happened to be a member of, who bought it thanks to a last-minute funding by a Rotterdam shipbuilding magnate named Van der Vorm, as well as other don donations, including from Bredis himself. The final price? About $3.9 million in today's money. A hefty, hefty profit which was split up among Boone, Van Meeren, and another dealer who helped sell the work named Huyendijk. 2.6 million went to Van Meeren alone. The Dutch family in Italy, of course, got nothing, which made sense given they were completely fictional. With this money, Van Meeren bought a huge estate in Nice, France, to which he moved. Hanema of the Boymans Museum unveiled the work to the public in June 1938. It was an immediate and immense hit. Scholars tripped over themselves to declare it Vermeer's best work. People crowded in awestruck reverence. Art magazines wrote lavish articles. Today, the work is still in the Boybins Museum, high up on the wall in the neglected part of the place, and no longer attributed to Vermeer. Apparently, the curators today find the fact that people keep coming to want to see the work pretty distressing. 
I'm inclined to agree with their assertion that the fact that people revered this work as much as they did back in the 30s is astonishing. Six fake Vermeers would be created by Van Meeheren in six years. Each new painting was uglier and sloppier than the last. The Head of Christ, The Last Supper, The Blessing of Jacob, Christ with the Woman Taken into Adultery, and The Washing of Christ's Feet. All were biblical works that fit this Caravaggio-influenced style that he was first going for. And suddenly, the benchmark for the works was not the oeuvre of Vermeer, but Christ at a mouse alone. So unconvincing as the works may have been, they looked like a mouse, and that's all people seemed to need. To need. Then Meherin had created a new Vermeer period in style, and if the works fit, they passed. Confirmation on top of confirmation. Group delusion at a miraculous level. These works sold for between two and eight million dollars in today's money, each, over the six years that they were made. The fact that six works came out in so few years, while only 30-some-odd works had ever been authenticated as Vermeer's in the preceding 300 should have raised some brows. Yet they did not. Attribute it to the fervor of the times. In 1943, Van Meeheren and his wife moved to Amsterdam. For Van Meeheren, the money was piling up and up, so much that he did not know what to do with it, literally. He blew scores and scores on prostitutes, bought over 50 pieces of real estate, threw ridiculously lavish parties, and stored wads of cash throughout his house, whilst private collectors battled for his increasingly terrible Vermeers. He got addicted to morphine, smoked like a chimney, and drank heavily. All the while, museums like the prominent Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, fearing the encroach of the Germans and their insatiable art fever, bought one of these works out of fear, the washing of Christ's feet. This was even though they did not even like it particularly, according to Hnema later. In his book I previously mentioned on this topic, The Forager's Spell, Edward Dolnick describes how another one of the reasons that people fawned over works like Christ and the Mouse was because of the dark times surrounding them. The maudlin and ghostly figures that critics had rejected in Van Meeheren's early work were suddenly loved for their peacefulness as Vermeer's. Dolnick also describes how the pitiful-looking Christ in Van Meeheren's works appealed to the forlorn Europeans in this era. People were moved by the idea of Christ as sad, tortured, and in pain, not above those things despite being divine. Similarly, just the critical praise, high price tag, and long lines to see the works were enough to convince plenty of people that the work was a great one. Think about it. If the typical person went into a museum and was aware of the market price of works there, do you think they would subconsciously see more worth in a work that sold for $10 million over one that sold for $10,000? Returning to the story... 1942 was when Van Meeheren's work got him roped in with the Nazis. One of his agents sold a work, Christ with the woman taken into adultery, to a slimy German banker living in Holland named Alois Meidel. The sketchy banker slash dealer hurried to Goering, who he knew was dying for a Vermeer. The asking price was ridiculous, 10 million in today's dollars. He let Goering keep it at Karen Hall while he deliberated. As mentioned, 137 works were eventually traded for this one Vermeer, which was a Goering favorite among his many hundreds of works and ridiculous collection of antiques and furniture. And a nasty, nasty fake it was. By 1945, Goering, as beyond delusional as he was, understood the situation was no longer in favor of the Nazis. He began to ship away many of his works to safety in trains and buried a number of treasures in caches around his property. His most valuable works filled up two private trains, and Karen Hall was totally stripped down to the animals in the menagerie which were shot so the enemy wouldn't get at them. As the rotund Reich Marshal sped away in a private car, Karen Hall was remotely blown up. We are interrupting our program to bring you a new sketch.
This is London calling. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. I'll repeat that. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. In May, shortly after Hitler had committed suicide and the Nazi regime was, officially, was effectively decimated, Goering was arrested by the Allies. The train cars with the Boricks were mentioned in the newsreel at the very start of this episode were found in the Bavarian Alps. They were looted by locals and eventually requisitioned by Allied troops, and the works inside discovered. A 40-room exhibition was hastily put together in an old depot, and GIs streamed in for a look at Goering's art collection, quote, courtesy of the 101st Airborne Division. The link between Van Meeren and Goering was discovered thanks to the interrogation of Alois Smidel, who had sold one of Van Meeren's forgeries to Goering. Van Meeren was charged by members of the Dutch provisional government following the liberation of Holland with the collaborating with the Nazis and plundering Dutch cultural property. These charges could have led to a death sentence. Backed into a corner, dealing with tobacco and with morphine withdrawal due to his custody, and facing such a grim charge, Van Meeren lashed out at his interrogators. The exact wording varies depending on translation, but it is said that he indignantly cried out at them, Idiots! and said that the work he sold to Goering was not a Vermeer. He painted it himself. Lead interrogator Yup Peeler was not quickly convinced. The sentence for forgery was much, much lighter than one for treason. But he slowly came to see the truth, as Van Meeren showed him and others how he had done it, how he had cooked the pictures, the trick with the Bakelite, what he had fooled Boone with in regards to a mouse, then a world-famous painting. All of it. In his press statement, Van Meeren painted himself as simply a man seeking revenge on his critics, tactfully avoiding discussing his connections to the Germans now that the Dutch were out for collaborators' blood. Peeler decided that Van Meeren had to be tested. If he was so good, could he create a Vermeer right then and there? Peeler rounded up the supplies and the witnesses, gave Van Meeren back his badly needed pills and cigarettes, and the artist painted for his life. It took six weeks, and the resulting work was Christ teaching in the temple, another waxy religious work in the vein of a mouse. The legal case against him was then built, with a team of experts brought in to prove the forgery, including scientists and art historians. They were able to prove Van Meeren's method was as he described. A search of his home led to the discovery of a forger's studio. There was even pieces of discarded antique wood that matched some of the stretchers on the forged works. Everything pointed to the fact that Van Meeren was telling the truth about his lies. The trial was held on the 29th of October, 1947, 10 years after Van Meeren had found his first success with Christ at a Mouse. By then it was a media and public sensation. Check out the blog for some fascinating footage of the inside of the trial room where Van Meeren's fake Vermeers, along with a few other Dutch master fakes he made and sold along the way, were set up all around the room. Reporters and witnesses packed in and newsreel cameras rolled. Van Meeren came in right after 10 a.m., flanked by police, paused before sitting as if giving the cameras a few extra good shots, and the trial began. The charge, fraud, Van Meeren admitted to. The state, museum authorities, and Van Meeren's lawyer all wanted to wrap things up as quickly as they could to avoid further embarrassment or charges, respectively. There was first a presentation on the science behind the fake works, followed by testimony by Pilar and a few other agents involved in the sales of the works, including Hanema and tycoons like Van der Vorm, who had battled it out financially for the works. When Van Meeren took the stand, he admitted to the judge that he did paint the works and sell them, 
He did it for his own personal achievement, he said, not for the money. This he had more of that he knew what to do with. He wanted the art world to suffer for what they had done to him, he said. And so, perversely, he was successful. Two weeks later, the verdict came in. Two years in prison for fraud. He was set to go to jail on November 26th. The day before this, the then 58-year-old Van Meheren was admitted to the hospital for more heart problems. These had begun before the trial. On the 29th of the next month, he had a heart attack and died the next day. He never went to prison. The curious thing was, just a year after all this had happened, Van Meheren was a folk hero in the Netherlands. He was a man who had swindled Goering. Goering himself stood trial in Nuremberg and committed suicide after he was sentenced to execution. Luckily, this was not before he found out the truth about his prize, Vermeer. His reaction was apparently one of intense shock, horror, and incredulity. Albert Bredis died before the trial, and nobody knows if he found out the truth about the fakes he had so desperately praised. Dirk Hanema lived to 1984, still believing Christ and the Mouse was the Vermeer's masterpiece. When we go through this case now, it is clear that Van Meheren was not this clever patriot who was out to swindle a Nazi. He was the man who would swindle anybody, someone so full of indignant scorn for the establishment that he, belie he believed had wronged him for ignoring his talent, that he spent years constructing one of the most successful ruses ever pulled off, just to stick it to them, stuffing his pockets along the way. His creations, so lauded, were not inspired so much by the genius of Vermeer than by his own bitterness and thirst for revenge. Perhaps one of the most somber facts about the whole thing, from an art historical perspective, is how Van Meheren lived compared to Vermeer. Vermeer made little money off his work. It is not clear exactly as to why, because so little is known about his life, but it is certain that he died deeply in debt at only 43, seemingly from the stress of financial strain after the Dutch economy collapsed due to the war. His work was forgotten in history until he was critically resuscitated in the 1880s. Van Meheren, all the while, whined and dined till the nearly the end. He thrived in ridiculous luxury while the rest of Holland suffered, and he took dirty Nazi money while they were tearing Europe apart for its art. And he eventually got the attention he wanted, in the form of a trial where the media painted him as a dogged, clever trickster instead of the bitter opportunist he really was. It, was, it is certainly a dark irony that a genius artist achieved so little success in his own time, while centuries later, a con man with a little talent with a paintbrush, made some poor imitations of him and made millions. One sometimes hears a phrase in regards to forgery along the lines of, he whose work is indistinguishable from a master is indistinguishable from a master. In the case of Van Meheren, I do not believe this applies. Vermeer captured quiet and magically quotidian moments in a dignified, subtle way in his paintings, like nobody else ever has. Han Van Meheren may have been good at chemical trickery and buttering up conceited connoisseurs, but with his own work, he could never even come close. This has been episode two of the Art Crimecast. I'm Nana and I hope you've enjoyed listening. Don't forget to check out the images on the blog at theartcrimecast.wordpress.com. Thank you also to Ted Greenfield for lending me the audio equipment that made this episode sound as good as it does. All the music clips that can be heard throughout this episode are all courtesy of museopen.org.